don't you grab out your Bibles? We're, of course, turning to the book of Jonah. Can continue our series through this little but power-packed and pertinent book, this account, this story. We pray for us really quickly, and then we'll launch into it this morning. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that it is alive and it is more than able to accomplish all that you send it forth to do. Give us receptive hearts. Give us listening ears. How we need you, Lord. We need your guidance. We need what only you can do. Speak to us. Change us. Challenge us. Convict us. We pray in your wonderful, mighty name, Lord Jesus. Amen. Really quickly, Jonah chapter 3 is our text this morning. We've been building the accounts and focusing on this story. We've seen, of course, the word of the Lord come to Jonah. We've seen Jonah run. We've seen him be refined in the midst of a storm. We've seen him be swallowed by a giant whale. We saw last week Adam talk through Jonah 2, Jonah's prayer, what do you do in the midst of a whale or a whale of a problem? What do you do when it feels like everything is closing in against you? There's only really one thing, isn't there? Only one right answer. You cry out to God. And God hears the prayer of Jonah, and it's not particularly pretty, but we saw in verse 10, the Lord speak to the fish. And it vomits Jonah out upon the dry land. As someone once said, I bet he was thankful that it was a whale and he came out the way he went in. With that disturbing picture, let's read on. Jonah chapter 3. It says, Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah for a second time. Now, we're going to read on, but I cannot help but pause. I mean, it's deja vu, isn't it? The word of the Lord comes... Again, to Jonah. But what is it? The first thing that God does after this up and down wild adventure of a ride in the midst of storms and whales and being vomited upon the dry land, God reaches out in mercy and grace and gives Jonah a second chance. Aren't you thankful that he is the God of the second chance? In fact, the mega theme of this whole book is that God is a God of the second chance. He is. He is the God who reaches and continues to reach, who pursues his people faithfully but intentionally. So not only does he save and spare Jonah's life, but he recommissions him. He recalls him. He says, Jonah, are you ready this time? Are you ready to respond? He gives him a second opportunity. I don't know if you read that and you think, well, I wonder how many opportunities he would have received. What if he responded in the same way as he did last time? Would there have been a third and a fourth and fifth and a sixth? Certainly the picture we see here is a God who continues to reach out in mercy. Despite our rebellion, despite our best efforts to run and to hide and to avoid the call that God has 
on our lives. So the word of the Lord comes again to Jonah a second time, saying, Arise and go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. So Jonah arose and he went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days' journey in breadth. It would be big in our day and age. It was even more so in the time and context within which this was written. Jonah began to go in the city going a day's journey. So he's only a day in to a three-day journey. He hasn't even covered the entire city. So he begins to, to call out, Yet forty days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least. And the word reached the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat in ashes. And he issued a proclamation and published throughout Nineveh. By the decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth, and let them call out mightily to God." Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Who knows, God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. What is the conclusion of this count, the pinnacle of the story? It says in verse 10, when God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he said he would do and he did not do it. Now, in many ways, we'd expect to see full stop, end of story, nothing further to say or add. There is, of course, chapter 4, and we'll cover that next week, because the Lord is not done yet with Jonah. There's some loose ends to tie up, shall we say, but certainly this is the pinnacle, if you like, the high point of what it was that God had desired to accomplish in and through Jonah and in and through the people of Nineveh. And it's easy to read a story like this. I think sometimes, perhaps it's because, as we said from the beginning, we kind of idealize the story as pictures in our minds. I'm certain of big whales and of reluctant prophets and ships and storms and everything that goes with this. It makes a nice tale. But it's not just supposed to be an account that we read to our children to comfort them before they go to bed at night, if indeed it does do that. It's not supposed to be something that we're removed from. These accounts are in Scripture. They're given to us to inspire, to instruct, to spark something within our hearts. I mean, this is an incredible account, talking about, as we did at the beginning of the story, seeing things through children's or with a childlike faith through a child's eyes with wonder. Like, hang on a second. Just think about the account we just read. God saved and spared an entire city. That's incredible. And at the same time, an entire city responded and not just responded in some kind of a superficial way from the king down to the lowliest person in the city. They heard the word of the Lord and they responded. The word repentance not used there specifically, but repentance is not a theological, it's something we do as a response. That's exactly what we've seen here. 
Even the animals, it says. Like this, this, this is so far-reaching. Don't let the animals eat or drink. Like our sin is so aware of, of what it is that's at play here that is the issue. That we will so completely turn towards God. Even the animals praising Him and joining in this incredible act of repentance and a turning away from what they were doing and turning to God. It's an incredible story. So what is it that we can learn from this account? Well, there's one particular reminder, and let me set it up for us in this particular way. I saw an article this past week. I was doing a lot of reading, being stuck at home in isolation. And this particular article, and there's so much around at the moment, uh, you know, we, we can't hear from missionaries or indeed flick on the news and not really see the impacts of the last few years and everything that is going on around us. It's almost a bit easy to become a little desensitized. Oh, it's just another war. It's just another natural disaster. It's just another riot. It's just stuff happening all around us. This particular article, it caught my attention and it was in the North American context and it was a survey given to millennials. So, you know, you can debate the direct correlation for our own setting here. But in this survey, they asked people, millennials, as I said, North American context, are you currently concerned by the current state of the world? Are you currently concerned? Perhaps that's a loaded question given everything that's going on. And I don't know if you'll be surprised necessarily by the result, but 98% of respondents to that large-scale survey all responded and said, we are greatly concerned by the current state of the world. We're greatly concerned. Of course, there's various factors cited, economic concerns, political concerns, environmental concerns. And you know, I'd, I'd say this to us, in love, but and say this to myself in love, but with a certain sense of purpose. You know, if the news cycle and social media is our only source of encouragement, then we're in for a discouraging ride and journey. And again, hear me correctly here, I'm not saying, well, we need to live in a little bubble, we need to be completely removed from things that are happening around us. But there is stuff, and it is impacting us. I went to a, a conference a couple of weeks ago in the midst of our month-long journey in isolating and all that's been happening in our family over the last little period. And this was a, this was a, a conference specifically actually in the Christian education, Christian schooling space. It was leaders of Christian schools from around the country gathering together. I was invited to go along just as an attendee. It was fascinating. It was a great time um, spent. And these, these Christian schools, did I mention that? I'm not sure if I did. Christian education environment, not just education in general. Talking about the challenges that the education system faces, particularly in the area of Christian worldview. They had various keynote speakers. They had some theologians. They had some practical educators there. I found it personally very informative um, and encouraging. But the, the question that was continually asked was, where do we go from here? Like, what is the next step? There's kind of these challenges. There's these, um, feels like swirling storms in so many different areas. But how do we actually 
navigate through? What, what, what does it look like? And of course, in the midst of all that's going on and these different questions, there's all sorts of symptoms. We talk about the great resignation. We talk about the great reset. Just put great in the name somewhere and you know, sells magazine articles. But there is that sense, isn't there, for us of, well, what, what is it? Where is, where is our focus? What is God saying in the midst? And if you're looking for an answer, well, here it is. Here's the three-point sermon of what God's saying. You will be disappointed. So I'll just disappoint you up front. That's not the purpose of this particular message. But it is to recalibrate our hearts and to say that there is this sense for us. What we need to do is to come back to this place of looking and keeping our focus in the right direction. We recently um, had a, a family holiday, had an opportunity to get away. There's two game changers for us in this particular holiday. And so my last illustration we're going to jump into very quickly. I know the time's getting away from us. What is on my heart for us today? The, the first thing was this, and we were heading north. We were, for the first time, in a new vehicle that my wife had leased through her work. And so it was a much more modern family car than we'd ever had in the past. And we discovered the joys of rear seat air conditioning. If you've not, and you're a family with young kids, you're welcome. We, I think from now on, will measure, measure all of our road trip holidays as the pre-receipt air conditioning holidays and the post. The pre and the post. Life changing. The second thing was this. It was a real-time navigation system. We had in this car, as most modern vehicles do, the capacity on this little LCD screen to plug in the direction that we were going. Now, obviously, we've always used maps and GPSs, and this was not such a win for myself, necessarily, having an inbuilt man sense, not requiring any external GPS direction, but particularly for the kids, because as any parent of young kids go, you get the question 17 times before you even leave the driveway, Oh, you know, are we there yet? How, how far have we got to go? Where, where are we? How long? And so this was a wonderful lifesaver for us to plug in the directions, bearing in mind we're going now a long trip, only 17 hours today, kids, it's a good one. And you can follow along, real-time navigation. You can look as often as you want. And the kids, they'd catch themselves. They'd be like, oh, Dad, how, how, how oh, yeah, you. there we go. Hey, Dad, are we? Oh, okay, yeah, fucking 16 and a half hours. <laughs> One minute from the last time I asked you where we were. And I want to encourage us that we have a real-time navigation system. That, yes, it feels like things are swirling around, that we're feeling a little bit lost, a little bit unsure and uncertain of what the next step looks like. If you're not feeling like that, then pray for me because I, I, I want what you've got. Most of us in the midst of everything that's happening around us are needing that reality. And, and I think it's intentional. I think God brings us into those seasons to test what it is that's undergirding our life and our direction. And... 
For us as we journey through this book and as we've reached this pinnacle of this story of Jonah, there's really three recalibrations and I'm going to give them to you really quick. Three things that I am hoping will stir in our hearts. Three things that we need to remember at all times, but particularly when we're in the midst of the long 17-hour journey and it feels like forever and you're wondering, will this ever end and what is the next step? Three things that will help us and bring us back to that place, recognizing the radical reality of the story and account we've just read. Number one, take a note, is this. This is a reminder, this is a recalibration that there is a God of real mercy. There's a God of real mercy. There is. Real mercy. It's to be easy for us as we've journeyed through this story and most pictures, most depictions of this account would certainly involve Jonah, would certainly most likely involve a whale. Well, the mega theme of this story is not the whale. In fact, there's only three verses in this whole account that are to do with the whale. So we can count that out. The mega theme is also not this reluctant man or prophet of God who's on a mission. Here is the mega theme that's far bigger than this, and it begins, this chapter, as the whole story began with what? Not the word of Jonah, not the good desire of Jonah, not the intentions of his heart. It begins with a God who is on a mission. Begins with his word coming, begins with his will being exercised, and it centers around his work that he will accomplish. He is a God who is about his purposes. He's a God who's, who cares. He's a God whose mercy we've just seen shape the life of a reluctant prophet and now in chapter 3 to shape the course of an entire nation. How radical is this kind of mercy? What kind of a mercy is this that takes a man who'd spent himself to the point of exhaustion running away from God, caught up in the web of his sin and destructive behavior of sinking to the bottom, the ocean of his bad choices, being vomited up on the dry land. And yet his mercy reaches out. It saves him. It rescues him. Redeems him. And recommissions him into God's great purposes. What kind of a mercy is this that takes a city, great in prosperity, but great in wickedness? No hope, no hope other than his supernatural and divine intervention. He didn't spare them because they were somehow moving towards him, because somehow they earned the right to be rescued and redeemed. He reaches out into the midst of this city, shaking it to the core that he might spare and save a city. There's no sin that can outrun his grace. And yet, what I love about this as well is his mercy is not just a mercy of personal pleasure. It was the coming back of Jonah to God's compassion 
that brought him towards God's commission. It was the experience of God's mercy that becomes his mandate. God wasn't interested in rescuing and redeeming Jonah so that he could simply become a silo. Just, just live by yourself, Jonah. You'll be right now. You've gone through a bit of a journey. If, if you just, just kind of isolate yourself, what's the first thing he does? He commissions him, but he calls him to go back to this, the city. Go back and love that city that I've called you to. Go back and bring the word that I have. I care about this city. He'll make it clear in the next chapter. I love this city, not for the city's sake, but because of the people that were in it. We too are saved to become servants, not silos. And there's a sermon and there's a message there, particularly in this day and age and era we live, where everything pushes us towards just becoming little isolated huddles and cliques. And groups. Isn't that an easier option? Aren't we just better off banding together? Forget the rest of them. If Jonah teaches us one message, it's that the believer is not called to live his or her life in isolation. It's not a solo journey. We need community, we need connection. But we need the call of the Lord, and the call of the Lord will always lead us beyond our own personal comfort. So there's this picture here of the real mercy of God, but there is a call, and I need to be quick here and move through so we can all get out to sausages. I can see us in anticipation for some fellowship. But there is a call for real repentance. See, it's one thing, isn't it, to say in this incredible picture that that God was here and he's looking to extend mercy, and he is indeed. But certainly initially, it's a strange way for us to see and to process through God's expression of mercy. Because what message is it that he gives Jonah to preach? Jonah walks through the streets and he says, hey guys, you've got 40 days. 40 days and time's up. Judgment's coming and you're all dead. Now turn, turn or burn. 40 days and God's judgment is coming. It's a little confronting to our modern Western ear, isn't it? And yet I would say this, there's something important in that because it really reveals both the fundamental problem that God was sending Jonah to address but also the fundamental solution to that problem. See, here is the fundamental problem, the fundamental issue. It wasn't just that these people were not showing justice to the poor, that they were oppressing, that they were doing all kinds of social errors in the way that they administered themselves. It wasn't just social reformation that was at the heart of God, as he said, Jonah, was it? It was spiritual transformation. The heart of the gospel is not a program of social reforming or behavioral reformation. It's spiritual transformation. 
You see, most of us would hear that call for repentance, that recognition of sin. We, we see it as a Gentile nation turns back to God and we kind of think, oh, that's, that's good, that was needed, that was necessary. You know, they're, they're a wicked Gentile country, that's, that's what they need, that's, that's what our city needs around us. That's, that's what we need, we need all them to turn back to God. And yet we see this reality in the midst of this account, that where does repentance begin? It wasn't in the halls of Nineveh, was it? It was in the heart of his rebellious prophet. All of us, I'm sure, would say, well, do we desire to see a genuine repentance in our city, in our nation? Hopefully all of us would say, yes, that's, that's what we would. Well, this is, this is what we're crying out for. This is genuinely what we would desire to see. Lord, you can do it. It's, it's here. It's in the account. How many of us would recognize that that kind of a repentance, it's got to begin here. It's got to be in the midst of his people, the hearts of God's people, turning back to him. Real repentance is required, not just in the world, but in the hearts of God's people. And number three, this is what I love, and we'll bring this to conclusion if Adam wants to come back up. I love this account because it's the power of real obedience. Of real obedience. See, here we see the prophet Jonah who'd spent his efforts, his energies, significant, substantial cost, running away from God's call. And where had he ended up? Washed up, and the be- washed up on the beach, covered in a disgusting mess, not of his own making. The greatest sum of all his efforts and energies running away from God, refusing to respond, had resulted in less than nothing. Less than nothing. A pile of, you know what. And yet in one moment of simple obedience, as God comes with a second chance and opportunity, says, will will you go? And he responds, Talk about the radical fruit of obedience. Three days journey, he's only a day in. One day in with a simple message, maybe he added something else to this call to repentance. We don't know. Many presume that perhaps there was more that he'd added and we just get the summarized version. But he's a day in, just one day in. Hadn't even crossed across the city. And already there is incredible response more so, I'm sure, than any other message he'd ever preached. As an entire city, from the king down to the lowliest of servants and even the livestock, all turn away from what they recognize as their sin in the eyes of the Lord and put their faith back in Him. One simple act of obedience God uses that to incredible effect. 
not only in the life of the Jonah, but what of Jonah, but one simple act of obedience in the midst of a nation, a nation that had lost its way. To just hear the word of the Lord and respond and recognize, not intellectualize it, not rel- relativize it, simply to receive and to respond. To close your eyes. I know we've kind of taken a helicopter view, kind of surveyed a a passage that has much, much in it. But I want to finish us this morning just in a place that we began after worship. Some of you might know a guy by the name of James Jordan. He's a... uh, a man who we've had come a couple of times, I think, and speak over the years, Yuzonda. He tells this account that I was reminded of this week as God was just teaching him and, and moving on his heart about the secret of the kingdom. God, show me what it is. What what is the secret of the secret of the kingdom? And as he was praying and seeking the Lord, he saw this. Uh, this picture, this image, the Lord brought to his mind. And he said, in, in the image, what, what I saw was this, uh, this knight who was dressed in full battle armor. And it was this parade, and I could see that this knight was being celebrated, that it was having great impact, that it had obviously accomplished and achieved incredible things. And said so he watched this parade thinking well who is this knight like he he must be someone who has it all together this must be someone in the kingdom of, of great significance and, and influence must be the wisest of the wise and the strongest of the strong clearly this is someone who has really discovered the secrets of the kingdom So he felt just this picture the Lord was showing him to go and to introduce himself to find out who it was that rode at the top of this horse that was clearly a person of great authority. He said as he went over and he looked up, he could see that there was actually in the visor, there was no eyes. He thought, this is odd. This is strange. What on earth is going on? So as you can only do in a vision or a dream, got up to eye level with this horse and peered in the visor. He said he got the shock of his life as he looked in. And rather than seeing some strong, muscular, intelligent, fierce-looking warrior in the midst of this whole picture, he looked in this, this armor. There was a young boy with this big smile on his face, just having the time of his life. This has been a challenge for me this week. In the complexities of life and the great struggles and the great resets and great resignations and trying to figure things out and work them through and I need more of this and more of that. As I said earlier, being struck and challenged by the Lord 
hang on a second. The greatest kingdom that has ever, that will ever exist. The kingdom of the king of glory. Jesus himself, he says, this is how it's received. It's not in strength. It's not in your intellect. It's not in your mind. It's not in your striving. It's not in... It's with the faith and the awe and the wonder of a little child. Not a childishness, but a childlikeness. It's our invitation this morning. I feel like the Lord is bringing us back just to that place of simple faith. That where we felt confused, that where we felt uncertain and unsure... Paul's just saying it's an invitation this morning. Come back to simplicity. Come back to that place of a simple faith, a simple trust in Him. As Jonah learned, it took him a journey to get there. As he washed up on the beach, <laughs> there's the sum of all my efforts to figure it out, to run away and think I know better alright alright Lord you got me let's go simple step of obedience don't know what it looks like exactly know how it's all going to play out that's the nature of the kingdom just stepping out hand in hand trusting So, Father, I thank you for just this account of incredible work that you did, not only in the life of Jonah, but in this city of Nineveh. We thank you that as we, we read this, we're struck with this sense of the greatness of your mercy. That's who you are. You're not removed, but you're reaching out. You're at work. You're accomplishing Lord, that we would recognize this radical need to live lives of repentance. When you scratch the surface there, but Lord, that is the posture of the believer, just continually coming back, looking away from ourselves, trusting in you. And Lord, that you would encourage our hearts this morning there's an opportunity for us to live and walk in real obedience not an obedience that requires us to step out in the fullness of our own intellect and wisdom and power and just just that simple trust that simple trust bring us back to that place of childlikeness of wonder simple trust adoration walking hand in hand with you we pray Jesus' name.